Hey guys, so we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 to 12. So if you've got a Bible, open that up, but it should come up on the screen. So Matthew chapter 16, verse 1 to 12. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the time. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began to discuss it, saying among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not, um, do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about the bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to be aware of the leavened bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Hey everyone, um, good morning. Just wanted to extend uh, my welcome to Rob's and to Anna's. It's great to be here with you today. Do I need to do anything different with my microphone to get that up and running? I, it is on. I think I'm starting to get something there. Great, awesome. Um, yeah, and so massive welcome if you, if you are here for the first time or maybe you came last week or we, as we came into this building. Um, it's just so great to be together um, every single week now. Hopefully we don't have any more lockdowns and we can just keep this going indefinitely. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just great to have you with us. Um, it's the case, isn't it, that we live in a world that is in many ways geared to make us believe that we are in the centre of it. And I don't think it's always been like this. Uh, very recently, my grandfather passed away, and then in, in light of that, it led to uh, just a few members of the family sitting around and sharing just different memories they had of him, but also sharing some of the memories that he had shared about his life um, before he passed away. And it just reminded me that um, the world used to be a very different place. My grandfather grew up in, in Barrel, um, and you know, like on a farm kind of out of town, when, before there was electricity out there, that kind of thing. And to get to school, you know, rain, hail or shine, he'd be on a bicycle and have to ride the five to ten miles to school. But it, when he was a teenager, World War II broke out. And so one of the just little reflections someone had was how he talked about just one time when his bike tire had you know, burst or broken or whatever. And it wasn't just a simple thing because of the war to go in and get a, a new tire because, you know, rubber was important. We needed it, uh, you know, over to help the war. So just to get a new tire on his bike, he had to go through this rigmarole of going to the school principal the principal having to like make an assessment and prove that without a tire he wouldn't be able to get an education. He'd have to get that written down and taken in with a special slip to the bike shop to get a tire on his bike. Now that is a completely different kind of way that we live. That would just be one of, I think, a bunch of reminders that you would have had back in the day that remind you that you are not the centre of the universe. You are just kind of one small, in some ways insignificant piece of a bigger picture. But we find ourselves surrounded with technologies that make us believe that we call the shots. We've got a, like a, a music speaker in our home with Amazon Alexa on it, which means that at just with any, any whim I can just call out demands in my home. I can say, Alexa, play the Beatles, and the Beatles will play. If I've run out of bin bags, I can say, Alexa, order bin bags, and they'll arrive at my house tomorrow. 
Um, if Alexa's playing music, I can shout, Alexa, stop, which makes me wonder what my elderly next-door neighbors are thinking. Um, we everybody know who Alexa is and just knowing we're, we're yelling at her all the time. Um, and, you know, the only, only trade-off for that is that Amazon listens into every single one of your conversations and stores it in Jeff Bezos' basement, but small trade-off to have control. And we've got, like, other apps. If you think, it's just, you know, we've kind of become accustomed to the idea that you can kind of order any food in Field in Sydney and it'll come to your house in, like, 30 minutes from anywhere with Uber Eats or, um, or, or most, we get used to same-day delivery on a lot of things. We live in this world that's conditioned to think that we can have what we want when we want. And so we often find ourselves, I think, well, at least for me, I find myself getting frustrated whenever I just can't get what I want in the moment. Um, and I think it's just going to continue down that kind of that spread. Mark Zuckerberg, the world's creepiest nerd, announced the, the metaverse recently, right? Which is so that everyone's going to be able to plug himself in and you will choose your own reality. Just again and again and again, these things conditioning us to believe that we are the center. And there are people obviously talking about some of the potential harms that this is causing, the way that it, that would be affecting how we relate to one another, how it might be diminishing our sense of gratitude or making us unable to be patient or even just less connected with our natural world. But one of the things that maybe this is also affecting that doesn't get talked about quite as much is how living in condition in this way might affect how it is that we think about God and relate to God. That if we believe that, that we get to make the demands, that we can have them met, and we're used to everything fitting in around us, that might affect the way we approach God. And I wonder, could it be the case that we are training ourselves to behave and expect God to work in a way that is directly opposite to how he himself has decided to work? That we often might expect God to bend himself around our wills rather than us being willing to bend to his and that might be rendering some people unable to encounter him at all. So that's what we're going to be exploring today as we work our way through the, the chunk of um, scripture that Anna just read for us. Um, this bit of narrative where, where Jesus encounters this group called the Pharisees who provide a model of how not to respond to Jesus. So we're in this section of the Gospel of Matthew where just again and again and again he keeps coming up against this group Last week we saw that they were you know, coming to Jesus questioning his moral goodness. And this week they're questioning his right to tell them what to do. They're questioning his authority. So I'm just going to pray now and we're going to get into this passage together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for your word. And um, as we read through this little exchange with some bits that seem a bit sometimes confusing or, or cryptic, that you would just be uh, enabling us to understand what you would have to say to us in this time particularly if there are some of us who are seeking answers about you, working out whether you are even there, um, trying to make sense of life. We just pray that this would be a time in which uh, you show yourself to us and that we can understand what it looks like to come to you and to respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, you can leave it there in Matthew chapter 16, but um, there'll be bits that will come up on the screen behind me as well. We'll just start at the very beginning of the passage that was read out to us. So Matthew 16, verse 1. It says, The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. So just again, um, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they are the religious elite. They are kind of the holy people, the religious leaders who have kind of had this monopoly on religious authority in, in ancient Israel at this time. And they've been disrupted by Jesus coming onto the scene and making a lot of really significant claims. Jesus has claimed that he has the right to speak on behalf of God, 
He's claimed to be this chosen Messiah who would lead the people of Israel. And he's calling people of all walks of life to follow him. And this is an extremely threatening thing that Jesus is doing to this group, the Pharisees, to have this new person on the scene claiming religious authority. And so again and again and again, they try to trip him up and you know, embarrass him or discredit him. And in this instance, they say to Jesus, look, if you are who you say you are, show us a sign. And by sign, they mean some, something big, something like a miracle, something massive, some kind of big, shocking, in-your-face sign. They want him to perform a miracle. And there's a certain boldness to this claim that, um, that you just don't want to miss as you read through this because these guys have been insulting Jesus, trying to like, bring him down, trying to dismiss him or embarrass him. And now they come to him with a demand. And so Jesus responds to this demand or this request in this kind of threefold response. From verse 2, it says, He replied, When evening comes, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. So he's saying to these guys in this kind of weird answer about weather, he's saying, look, you guys think you know a lot because you do know some things. You know how to tell the weather, for example. You can go out and see there's clouds in the sky and then you can conclude that it's going to be kind of rainy and wet weather today. You know, really, really smart. But when it comes to spiritual things, you don't have the foggiest clue what you're even looking for. That, um, that there could actually be clarity right in front of your eyes and you not see it. And this is a fair enough statement for Jesus to say because we're pretty deep into the book of Matthew now. We've been reading through some of the things that Jesus has said and done. And we've actually seen Jesus perform a whole bunch of miracles. He's healed the blind, he's cast out demons, he's miraculously fed thousands of people, and he's preached a message which, above all, should be the kind of pointer for them, that is completely in line with the Old Testament kind of, that they believed, the prophecies about what the Messiah would say and do. And so Jesus is saying, look, if you had any degree of perception um, as a religious leader, you wouldn't be asking for a sign. You'd already put two and two together that the signs that you need to conclude that I'm the Messiah are before you. But he's saying, look, you, don't have, you, you can't do it. You can't actually see. You don't have spiritual eyes to see what's going on. That's the first part of his response. Then secondly, he condemns their motivation for asking for a sign. In verse 4, he says, A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign. So Jesus is saying that their request is actually evidence of their wickedness akin in some ways to adultery, which is a pretty kind of inflammatory statement. So how is that? Like, is, wouldn't it be actually quite reasonable to ask Jesus for some kind of proof to back up the, the claims that he's you know, made about himself? What Jesus is saying here, though, is there is something about this particular request that is revealing something about these guys' hearts. And if, it makes sense if you kind of follow the logic of the request, because already up before this story has begun, Jesus has made a lot of claims and a lot of calls. He's called his listeners, including the Pharisees, to change, to repent, to give up their sinful living, and in their case particularly to stop being hypocrites, people who kind of put pressure on other people but don't live it out themselves. And he's called them to follow him. And they've made it known that they don't want to do that. And that's the key to, the, to this and this explanation. They don't want to follow Jesus. But what they're saying is, I suppose if you can give us proof, if you can give us what we want, we will reluctantly do what you say. Responding to Jesus' call with an only if you do this is actually signaling the wickedness that they've got beneath the surface, this rebellion that they have in their heart. I was trying to think of like what a, a modern example of this might be. It was kind of hard to do, but the closest I got was like, imagine if 
um, I got a, a text from my wife Sarah when I was at home, she was out, that said, look, I've had a rough day. I'd feel really loved if uh, you'd pick up some food for dinner and just give the house a quick tidy before I got home. Now, you can imagine if she got home and I've done neither of those two things, and I said, well, to be honest, I wasn't sure it was you that sent the message. Like, maybe hypothetically, someone could have got a hold of your phone and just pretended and sent it through to you. So I've just been playing Xbox. <laughs> She's not going to say, my bad, I should have sent you proof, I should have known. Because even just in not, in not obeying it, it's revealing where my preferences lie. It's revealing that I don't actually want to do that, that I would maybe do it reluctantly, but I'm actually looking for any way out of doing what she wants. It's it would be revealing that I cared more about myself in that moment. Now, that's just a hypothetical. I've never done anything even close to that, let me tell you. Um, so what's going on here is Jesus has come with a message that just a lot of people don't want to respond to. His message that calls out, in particular for the Pharisees, their hearts that weren't loving God. And he says, return. Return to what you're meant to be, to loving God the way you should and serving him. And they're saying, hmm, maybe if you can prove it. And Jesus is saying, wrong answer. You should be loving God already. Because Jesus isn't looking for followers who are compelled or forced to follow him, but he wants joyful followers. And so on the back of that, Jesus then says one final comment. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. Now, this is a bit of a cryptic kind of inclusion for Jesus in this, and particularly if you're not familiar with the story of Jonah. But Jonah was a, um, was a prophet in the Old Testament who was sent to the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, which was, you know, in, in many ways, the kind of bad guys of the period. And Nineveh was known as this hive of evil, where there was just people who'd come together just in every way possible to just kind of be, to live for themselves and ignore God. And in the story of Jonah, uh, Jonah's told to go and tell them that God's judgment will be upon them. But he disobeys this call. He, gets, um, he runs out of the way, ends up getting thrown off a boat, swallowed by a big fish or a whale. And then three days later, he's spat up on the shore of Nineveh and preaches. So it's a pretty crazy, wild story. But the remarkable thing about the story of Jonah, obviously aside from the whale, is that when Jonah gets to the city of Nineveh and he preaches this message that they are wrong and they need to repent, they actually do. The people of Nineveh, they respond. They put on sackcloth and ash and cry out to God and he, he relents from judging them and forgives them. So Jesus is just dropping in this weird little reference, none will be given except for the sign of Jonah, which is kind of drawing this story to the Pharisees' minds. And what he's meaning here is probably a bit of a double reference because obviously there's one maybe reference to the fact that as Jonah you know, was in, inside this whale for three days that eventually Jesus is going to die and rise again. So in another part of Matthew, he kind of uses that example. But he doesn't say that here. So there's that, that side of it. But I think another meaning that would be tied up with this is what sign did the Ninevites ask for or get when they got given this message of repentance? The answer is none. They didn't get given any particular sign. Jonah just rocked up and told them, you need to repent, you live in the wrong way, you need to turn back. And they do. This is what Jesus is ultimately calling people to respond to. Not a sign, but a message. A message that is laying bare the reality of our heart and sin and rebellion. We've gone the wrong way and God is calling us back. Ultimately, he's calling us back through Jesus himself, that he is the way that we can have forgiveness for our sin. So what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees here is, look, the Ninevites, you know, these 
these horrible people, they just got a message and they responded to it. But you, the people who should know better, are asking for a sign. He's kind of convicting them that they are even worse than these Ninevites. And so on the back of that, Jesus leaves and he walks away. That's an interesting little kind of section of, of Jesus' life to kind of to think about and what he, what he might be wanting to communicate to us through this story. I think one of the things we see in this passage is some, some insight into what it looks like to be a real seeker of God. I want to show you another passage in Matthew which, um, which I think in some ways is contrasted to this. It's been a while since we looked at this passage here at City Light, but if you've got a Bible in front of you and you flick back, it's only a few pages before. Back in Matthew 7, Jesus is giving this sermon about how it is that people can come to him and find him and discover life in him. And he says this. In Matthew 7, verse 7, Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks the door will be opened. That's a really encouraging um, set of verses. I think immediately it seems more encouraging than the one we've just read because it's Jesus saying that there is this reality. There is this, this God who is not only there and real, but who desires to know us. He desires to make himself known. He des- desires to have relationship with us. And so Jesus is saying, if you go looking for this relationship and go after and pursue God, you will find him. So there's an encouragement in that, in that line but on one level, it seems like that's not really what's happening in this story with what's happening with the Pharisees. Because they seem to be asking for something, but they don't get what they ask for, and Jesus just walks away. And so I think what this story is trying to kind of show us is that there is a type of seeking that isn't really seeking. Really looking for God is wanting to find reality and respond to it. To meet God for who he is, on his terms, and then submit to what you find and what he calls you to. But often, the way that we work is that we want God to conform to our demands. So, for example, they might be coming to God with the expectation that he ought to give you some kind of clear-as-day proof, whatever you decide that might be for you, that you'll kind of believe in him and do what he says if, if he speaks audibly to you or if he writes your name in the sky or if someone can hand to you kind of this bulletproof you know, logical formulation as clear as 2 plus 2 equals 4, that he is who he says he is. That's to come at God, like in this way that the Pharisees are asking for some kind of sign. But what is missing from that is that that's not what God is after. He's not after engaging with some kind of intellectual exercise. He's after your hearts. He's, he's offering you a message and a way to find forgiveness, to find relationship with him. So, so coming at God with, with this set of demands isn't always going to lead you to finding him in the end. Or maybe it's coming to God with questions that aren't real questions, but are just really kind of things that you don't think are answerable to kind of expose God as being a fraud. Asking questions in such a way to really justify the conclusions that maybe you've already come to. Because you've already decided deep down that God isn't going to satisfy you in the way that you want to be satisfied. Or it might be coming to God with some idea already made up in your mind of what God should be like and to only be willing to follow him, respond to him, if it turns out that the God you find, say, in the Bible matches that picture, if he's got your political views or if he's got your values or your preferences, he does the kind of thing you want him to do. 
But I think what we see in this account of the Pharisees is that truth seeking isn't coming to God, wanting Him to fit our picture and fit our intentions, but it's to come to Him realizing that the discovery of Him might be a, just a major reorienting and a, a paradigm shift, shift of our lives. Kind of similar to like the Copernican Revolution. Are you familiar with this from like high school science? We're in a high school, here's a bit of a you know, science lesson. But you know, up to the 16th century, and like flat earthers, they get, a, they get some bad press these days, but everyone used to be a flat earther up to the 16th century. Um, and they had the idea that the way that the solar system, the universe was structured, was that the earth was in the middle, and everything else went around it. And, you know, that was kind of, made sense, because you look, you see the sun come up, it goes over, it goes down, so everything must be going around. We're still, we're not moving, that's how it works. But Nicholas Copernicus had this radical idea that he put out, which is, maybe we're not the center, maybe the sun's in the middle, and we're just one of nine planets going around it. And this wasn't well received when this was put out. That was an uncomfortable kind of thing to be floating to people, because if you've spent your whole life thinking that you and your planet is the middle of the universe, to hear that you're just somewhere off the side, not the biggest thing at all, just rotating the sun, which is really in the middle, is uncomfortable. People really pushed hard against it. It's uncomfortable to learn that you're not the most important thing. It's uncomfortable to learn that everything isn't about you and going around you, but you're just one kind of small thing among many going around something else of greater significance. That's why this is uncomfortable for the Pharisees. They've spent their life thinking that they are the, the top dogs, they're the most important thing in their whole spiritual dimension, that, that it is them. And here Jesus is saying that you're not what's most important. You've actually got to bend your life, submit your life to something greater. And that's why it's uncomfortable for us as well. Because Jesus is, has a message of, of repentance, of calling to reorient our whole lives around him. But before you think this is only an issue for those who are not yet followers of Jesus, there's this one more section that Anna read out for us, which we'll go through much quicker than this first one, where, where just Jesus debriefs this experience with his followers, those who have already decided to follow him. We'll just read through it briefly now. It says in verse 5, When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, it is because we didn't bring any bread. So you, you're kind of meant to see that that's like a bit of a dumb response to what Jesus said. But then it goes on, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you have little faith, why are you still talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? but be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So following this encounter that Jesus had directly with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he goes to his disciples and, and he says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, which is basically kind of, kind of playing into the idea of how bread is made, which may not be as familiar with us as it, as it was for them, but that most of bread, as far as I can work out, is made of dough, which is like flour and water. I don't know. Um, and then there's one little ingredient, one very small thing you throw into the bread, which is the yeast. And it might just be like a little sprinkle, but that's the, the thing that gives the, the bread the ability to rise and form. So a very small bit of the ingredient 
that is significant and works its way through the whole bread to make it what it is. And so Jesus is saying, look, just beware that some of this mindset and some of this teaching that is holding them back might creep into your life because that could really kind of sabotage you and affect you even if a little bit of that teaching got in. But the disciples show where their kind of heads are naturally at. They just say, well, is this because we don't have any bread? Um, which is, you know, a, a, almost a comical response. But I think it's a similar kind of thing with us. We might not be worried about bread, but we can have the mindset that the, the thing which is going to most affect us, rob us of our joy, affect our lives, is the material, material things that, you know, if we don't have enough, whether it's you know, the right car or the house or the possessions or whatever it is, but Jesus is just pulling us back and saying, no, 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 stop worrying about bread, stop worrying about stuff, and just hear this. Guard yourself against the yeast of the Pharisees. Is there any of this mindset that is creeping into your life that really believes that you are the central point, that you don't really want to submit to God and you're just hoping that God will submit to you? Be on guard against that. Be on guard against that. Has any of that thinking filtered into your life? that God should, you could expect to make demands of God, that he should do what you want him to do, that only if he does a certain thing would you actually submit your life to him and follow him. Because I think sometimes even as followers of Jesus, we can live our lives like God exists to do our bidding, that we're the center of the universe and God has to rotate around us. Think about how you think about just various calls of obedience on your life. Jesus calls us to follow in every area of life, but sometimes maybe with a heart posture similar to the Pharisees. We know that God has called us to follow him in our workplaces, and we think, okay, yeah, if, if work's going well and it's easy and kind of nice, of course I'll bring that under you, God. But if work is hard, if there are people that are difficult to work with, maybe I'm not going to be loving towards them. Or if work's just difficult, maybe I'll find ways to kind of cheat or get around some of the work I have to do. Or it's to know that God has called us to obey him with our bodies and we think look yeah jesus if, if if my marriage is good or if i'm in the relationship status that i hope i'm in then i'm going to honor you with my body but if you don't kind of come to the party when do your end of the bargain i'm not really going to submit m- myself to what you want another area to think about would be church community like this this gathering that we're a part of not just here on a sunday but through the week and, and all the ways that we interconnect this this web of family that is this amazing thing called church is meant to be a collection of people all focused and, and centered around and geared around God in the middle. And, and, and Jesus and this life we've been brought to in him. But often we think about church community in a very me-centered way. We can think, well, is this meeting my needs? Is this kind of meeting the needs of my kids? Is this fitting with my energy levels or my preferences? Or we'll think, you know, yeah, I'm happy to serve if it's fulfilling me in some way or giving me recognition or um, just working with just everything else I've got going on in life. Rather than just coming at it from a place of saying that we're not in the middle, that, that the church isn't about any one of us, but it's about Jesus. Or think about how you think of even just your personal aspirations as you kind of have this kind of internal map of where your life is heading, what you'd like to achieve, where you'd like to live, what you'd want to do over the course of your life. And to only really bring God into that after you've kind of really laid out for yourself where you want to go. You'll, you'll submit to God insofar as it doesn't t- take you too far off course of the life you've got planned for yourself. Or think of worship, particularly private worship. 
the, the life that you have, not when anyone's looking here, but when you wake up in the morning or you're going to bed at night or you're on your lunch break and you're trying to sit down and engage with God. Reading the Bible, praying, that kind of thing. How often do we make that an experience about us? Where we feel like what, what needs to happen in this time is that I need to get whatever the kind of spiritual juice I need to get through or for God to kind of do something in my life or calm me or comfort me or inspire me, whatever it is, rather than coming to that time with a sense of, now this is just a chance to, to glorify God, to know who he is and to center my life on him. Jesus' call to us is to watch out that we do not have a sprinkling of this heart of the Pharisees who won't submit to God on his terms. I started by saying that we're trained to believe that we're the ones who call the shots and, and we can make demands and get what we want. But to do this is to have it all backwards. That there is actually a, a deeper sense of coherence to life that comes with placing God in the center. So I just want to finish by, by reading a quote by, um, by John Piper, a preacher, where he just kind of highlights just how it is that we should have everything centered around Jesus. This is what he writes. He says, So it is with the supremacy of Christ in your life. All the planets of your life, your sexuality and desires, your commitments and beliefs, your aspirations and dreams, your attitudes and convictions, your habits and disciplines, your solitude and relationships, your labor and leisure, your thinking and feeling, all the planets of your life are held in orbit by the greatness and gravity and blazing brightness of the supremacy of Jesus Christ at the center of your life. And if he ceases to be the bright, blazing, satisfying beauty at the center of your life, the planets will fly into confusion and a hundred things will be out of control and sooner or later they will crash into destruction. I just want to call us to be a countercultural presence, not just a you know, hundred odd people in a world of seven billion, all fighting to be in the middle, fighting to be the most important thing, fighting to, to live life on our terms. But rather, wouldn't it be great if we were a people who together and alone sought to align ourselves around Jesus, to come to him on his terms, to see him as God as he is, and to respond in submission and love to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to confess that we often are like the Pharisees in the way that we want to make ourselves the center, that we we have expectations about what you should do for us or in us that, that might just be our preferences, might be what we want. We often have hearts that, are, that don't really want to submit to you, that don't want to have our life uh, impacted by you, and so we try to keep you at arm's length. Often we're even just more concerned about what we have to eat and wear and, and, and own. So we just ask that you would be at work in us to help us see you you do say seek and you will find knock and the door will be opened we want to know you we want to we want you to show yourself to us but help just guide our hearts from any any wickedness or evil that is there it is that is really us seeking to control you or make demands of you we pray that we would be able to know you deeply in that time